I asked one of my tried and true uh, friends and, and educational gurus, and right away she recommended your book, and actually like a lot of your books. And right away, Nick and I just right we ordered it immediately, and we were instantly sold. And I have shared many tidbits from it often. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna jump in. You, you gotta have an eye. Third eye education. Third eye. Welcome to Third Eye. Today we're joined by Wiley Blevins, a world-renowned expert on early reading, an educator, and author of many books, from A Fresh Look at Phonics to Happy Birthday Clifford. He's worked as Vice President and Editorial Director of Macmillan McGraw Hill, Associate Publisher of Raycraft Books, as well as working with Scholastic, Open Court, Benchmark Education, and Houghton Mifflin. So there are two distinct, very complementary facets of your work. You have this work on early reading, and then you have work on stories for early readers. And it seems that there's this kind of overlap, this fertile ground between these two areas of expertise to explore in terms of how we communicate with young people in order to help them grow. Yeah. So do you have any tools or techniques or, or lessons to help our communications with young people outside of direct instruction? So one of the things that I'm not sure if you know about me, but I'm also the associate publisher of Raycraft Books, which is an imprint that's dedicated to publishing books by authors and illustrators from underrepresented communities. We know that many children don't see themselves in the books that they read. And so that's been a really important focus of my work in the last several years. There was a, a paper written by Dr. Rudin Sims Bishop out of Ohio State, who said that when we look at the books we have for our young readers... They need to be mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. You know, mirrors, all children need to pick up books and see themselves reflected in those books because that tells you your story matters, your story is important. There are far too many children who open books who never or rarely see themselves. So our imprint is dedicated to creating more and more of those books. But windows are books where you open them up and you are introduced to people who might be similar to you in some ways, but different in other ways. And it really helps you develop this deeper understanding of people and an empathy for people who might be a bit different. So a book can be a mirror for one child and a window for another child or vice versa. And books that are sliding glass doors are books that give you a safe passageway into a world of information, a world of imagination. So you can safely spend the day with sharks and it'll be okay or science fiction or what have you. And when you think about those different kinds of books and and how they serve our young learners and the impact they can have, it really helps you reevaluate the books that we share with our young learners, whether it be books in our classroom library or instructional tools that we use. So even something as basic as a decodable text, we want to make sure that they are also reflective of a wider audience, that children when they're first learning to read, we know that they're attaching their oral language to print. And these books are very basic and very simple, but they need to be great books. They need to be stories that are worth reading and rereading and writing about and talking about. They need to be well-written. They need to sound like English language. There's a very high bar for these early texts. And so, as, as you know, I talk a lot about decodable texts and very strong feelings about them. They hate them. They love them. We've all seen decodable texts that are pretty bad. And so that's been one of the problems. I've been working with publishers to elevate the quality of those texts. What's really interesting is back in 1985, Becoming a Nation of Readers talked about decodable texts, and they set a very high bar for this instructional tool. They need to be instructive. So they need to have lots of words with the target skills so that children can get mastery of applying those five skills. They need to be comprehensible. They need to sound like English, and we've all seen ones that don't. And they need to be engaging. 
stories that are are fun to read and talk about and write about, like I like I just said. And unfortunately, that bar has been so lowered that we have too many instructional tools for our early learners that are inadequate. And so we really have to push hard. We really have to push back with publishers and, and be very picky about the books we bring into our schools that we meet that high bar because our young readers deserve that. I love what you're saying. And it, it speaks to my heart. There's tons of resources for like grades three and above. But how do we do that and do that well for our younger readers? It's really nice to hear you echo that. And also, we've recently done a collaboration with the Rochester Public Library. The grant support came from Nick. Southeast Minnesota Initiative Foundation. Yes, absolutely. And they helped us identify books that are all of those things, but especially the sliding glass doors and and the windows, especially. And thank goodness we had that collaboration Mm -hmm. when we post this. We can share that list. How do you find good materials in a way that doesn't drain yourself, your time, your colleagues? Do you have any good recommendations? Yeah, I mean, the American Library Association publishes lists of the the top books. There are review journals like School Library Journal and Publishers Weekly that you can go online and get free access to like the best books of the year and what have you. I know some of the Mm -hmm. book clubs have specialized collections that focus on diversity. And so that is a way to discover some of the more popular books that are being written. But you're right. Discoverability is one of the hardest things. So there are, if you do a Google search for some, you know, what they call diversity publishers, there are some smaller publishers that have websites that have, you know, full on lists. And some are very focused on specific communities. So that's also another way to, if you want to include more books from a particular community that your children are are asking for, or that you want to make sure in your classroom, that's also another way. Yeah, book club is new to me. I just fell into it recently, actually, through the hashtag on Twitter, we need diverse uh, books. Yeah. And so through that, our media specialist and I ended up in a book club. And it's a new experience for me. It's really interesting. If you're an avid reader or looking for text. Yeah. My wife's a speech path. A lot of kids have articulation issues. And do those errors impact reading? Are there ways or strategies that speech paths can utilize? Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up because one of the things I talk about in my workshop with teachers is that a lot of schools don't take advantage of their speech pathologists. They have specialized training that can really enhance the delivery of the instruction by teachers. What they have been trained on, like the linguistics and all of that, a lot of teachers in their teacher prep courses didn't get that training. And that training would be enormously beneficial to analyze student errors, especially in writing, but also in speech and how those things are connected. So I encourage schools to include the speech pathologist in their grade level training, speech pathologists coming in and evaluating like phonics assessments and evaluating student writing and things like that can be just a different eye and a very informed eye from a very distinct perspective can be quite helpful. Yeah, thanks. I'm going to piggyback off of that, Mike. So there's an increased awareness and understanding of dyslexia in the education community. And I Mm -hmm. personally am diagnosed, diagnosis is the right word, as dyslexic. It happened very late that they were able to label it. And so I'm just curious, what's the relationship between phonemic awareness and being able to support our readers who have some struggles? Yeah, we can determine pretty early on which students are at risk for reading issues like dyslexia. And obviously, the phonology piece is a big, a big part of that problem. And so the kinds of instruction that we deliver early on not only will benefit 
students with dyslexia, but will benefit all students. The students with dyslexia need more intensity. Mm -hmm. And so the pacing might be varied and some of the intensity and, and the way in which we approach some of the activities, we might need to go deeper. And even the way we look at their assessments, like fluency with a child who's dyslexia is a whole different question. So like I do all these assessments with my students where when it comes to phonics, I look at it through two lenses: the lens of accuracy and the lens of automaticity. With a dyslexic, that automaticity lens is going to be a, a bit more challenging for them. So I have to figure out how I'm evaluating even the information I'm collecting. But we need to have all of that in place for these students. And we can identify which students who are at risk very early on, much earlier than they are being designated. And the kinds of instruction that we provide early on can benefit them as well as everyone else. Thank you very much. You shed light on something that I've always kind of wondered and have dug into it a little bit, but you're able to articulate it in a much simpler fashion. I actually feel like I understand it now. Speaking of things that you can do that benefit everybody, I love your book, which again, for our listeners, A Fresh Look at Phonics. <laughs> I love how you break it down into things that I think every teacher at every level can use and then there's, of course, the things that are very specific to early readers. Do you have a favorite or perhaps an easy entry point to something that all teachers can use? And to counter that, that just early readers might benefit most? Yeah, it's hard for me to pick one thing. Uh, you know, for me, great phonics instruction, I say to the book, is active, engaging, and thought-provoking. Too often I go into classrooms and I see phonics instruction that's very sort of isolated skill and drill. We need students doing things with letters and sounds. We need them talking about, making observations about words to make their thinking public so we have a deep understanding of their understanding of how English words work. Phonics lessons should be fun. So they should be building words with letter cards so they're very flexible in their use of those spelling patterns. They should be looking at a series of words and noticing things that are different. So what's the difference between ran and rain? What do you hear this different? What do you see this different? They should be reading really great decodable texts where they can apply their skills and gain fluency and then writing about those texts. Because when they write about those texts, they are having to use words with their new skills. So we are forcing them to quickly start to apply those skills. You know, there's so much. I have a whole series of like questions I ask with my decodable readers that get at early reading behavior. So I ask a question that forces them to go back into the text, reread, and then support their answer with evidence from the text. That's a great early reading behavior. Oftentimes I go to classrooms and I see decodable text as kind of word calling events that they just sort of race through. There's no follow up. There's no going deeper. We aren't making the instruction that we provide in phonics as impactful as it can be. And the thing that concerns me is we have a very short window of opportunity to teach those basic skills. You know, we have those 44 sounds and the basic spellings that we're covering in kindergarten, first and second grade. We have to get them to mastery efficiently and effectively so that we can move on to more complex skills. And there are ways of making our instruction more impactful and to get to mastery faster so that children can then transfer it. And that's, that's what's exciting to me about phonics. You know, I talk about the 10 reasons why phonics instruction sometimes fails. A lot of us have all the basics in place that we've been told to have in place, but some of that comes with these obstacles that is not helping us maximize student learning. So I want to help teachers unplug those things and then find those power activities that really move the needle faster for our young learners. One of the things that I talk a lot about in the book is the fact that we take a very exposure-focused 
attitude toward phonics instruction. We have we have a scope and sequence, and we march through it, and we're teaching a new skill every week. And the reality is, children often don't master a skill that quickly. When I introduce a new skill, it takes often four to six weeks of consistent review and repetition and application for children to get to mastery before they can then transfer. Mm. You layer on top of that the fact that spelling lags behind reading, so that's even more time. We need to have instruction that, yes, has a scope and sequence, but has this built-in review and repetition cycle. So the very first thing I do when I work with teachers, we just take their curriculum. We look at the skill that's being taught one week. We map out all the places where they're actually hanging on to that skill, and it's generally not much. And then we build in that review and repetition cycle so that we ensure all of our students get to mastery. I have assessments in place where I look at skills over time to see if decayed learning happens. One of the things we don't talk a lot about in phonics is the fact that decayed learning is a real issue. Hmm. You teach a skill one week, you don't hang on to it long enough, and that learning begins to slip away, and it's like you never taught it. So I work with the reading coaches here in New York City, and I have this sort of mantra they always laugh at me about. But I say, no more one and done, now one and just begun. So every skill we teach, it's just it's just the beginning. And we have to plan how we're going to hang on to it long enough that every child gets to mastery, so they can transfer it. It's just a different um, perspective of looking at how you approach phonics. So Wiley, I want to piggyback on what you just said. So I was working with a fifth grade teacher the other day and this particular fifth grade teacher, we, we went back and forth and we were trying to troubleshoot with two particular readers. And what it really comes down to is this fifth grader is struggling with phonics. So how do we find upper level elementary, early middle school materials that are engaging our students? Because you also talk about that need to read and want to read and reread. But if we're teaching kindergarten, first, second grade topics to fifth graders, that engagement piece. The thing that I do with children who are beyond second grade, the very first thing, if there are any children I'm concerned about, is I give what's called a comprehensive phonics survey. It's just an assessment that I created. There are a lot that are out there. And all it does is it has students read a series of nonsense words, but they're organized around skill categories, short vowels. Short vowels with blends and digraphs, long vowels, complex vowels, multisyllabic. The reason I do that is I need to identify that lowest level deficit in their foundation to rebuild that foundation. So that's step one. There are publishers who are publishing books for older readers that are, are simpler and more focused on particular phonics patterns that you want to work on. I find that informational text works the best because you can find even informational text from a younger level, but it looks more sophisticated because of the photos and what have you. And I can have rich conversations around informational text. So that is one thing. The other thing is we know that a student's oral vocabulary is linked to their ability to read multisyllabic words. We don't do a good enough job in kindergarten, first and second grade to flood children with vocabulary and content because they need all of those words and all that information as they attack more complex texts. So we need to even do better job in those early grades of, you know, our read alouds, having rich conversations. I even have a process in place when I read a decodable text with my students, which has very basic words. I choose a tier two academic word that I can use to talk about the story, but isn't in the story. I teach it and I reinforce it and I have students use it in speech and I, have, I encourage them to use it in writing. So if we're reading a story about frogs called, you know, I can hop, hop, frog, hop, 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 you know, that's not a very complex vocabulary rich story, 
but there are all these photographs about frogs in their habitat. So I will introduce the word habitat to my students before we begin reading. And we, as we go through, we will look for clues in the words and pictures about a frog's habitat. I will encourage them to turn to their partner and talk about what they learned about the frog's habitat. Then we write about the book. I say, you know, why don't you use your new word habitat when you're writing? Every story, I'm introducing at least one more academic word. It's just these little things that you just keep elevating the language that you're using with children in every way possible will benefit them so that they don't get to fifth grade and they don't have the foundation in place and they don't have the vocabulary. You know, they see these big words and there's nothing that is connecting with them. The other thing is we need very early on to make students really great word detectives where they start noticing words that can be used not to just sound out words to get at meaning. There's so many fun things we can do. You know, Let's say the word was was uh, portable, was a word in a, a story. I can take port out and we can have a rich conversation and connect it to export and import and transport and report and have these really fun conversations like what is report? What does a reporter carry? If port means carry, what does a reporter carry? What about export? What does that mean? Look at the exit sign. Where do we go when we exit? We go out. What do you think export? You know, you have these great conversations and children are starting to notice words and talk about words. Creating that climate can also benefit students so they don't get to fifth grade and have very little understanding of the morphological pieces of words that can really help them. All my kids, as they grew up, watching them learn to read and decode, it was always fascinating to me because they uh, seemed to be seeking how to crack a code. You know, they were very eager, eager readers, and they loved to read, Mm -hmm. but... uh, they wanted to crack that code themselves. And so that was a motivator for themselves is to, to dig in deep and figure things out. It was fun to watch that. My first grade teacher, I talk about her a lot, Mrs. Warshop. When I went to school, we didn't learn to read to first grade. It's very different now. <laughs> the demands of kindergarten have changed dramatically. But Mrs. Warshop taught it like a system and it sounded like a puzzle to me, like what you're describing with your children. And so I... I quickly got the concept that there were these letters, these strange squiggles that by themselves or in combination stood for sounds. And so, you know, we were kind of slow in how we learned them, but I would see words in print in, you know, in books, in church and at home. And so I started trying to figure out these combinations, but it was like a game to me. Curiosity she instilled in us because she taught it like a system. We got how it worked. We were just sort of holding on for her to teach us more and more of those combinations. I can remember reading my first books in school. This goes way a long time ago. It was uh, Dick and Jane, you know, run, 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 you know, and all that stuff. It was your first series, Mike. Actually, the the books that got me started as a child, Mm -hmm. eight kids in my family that I grew up in, and uh, my oldest brothers came home from college, brought me uh, the Hardy Boys books. And I don't know what, I, I probably was in second or third grade. I just ate them up because uh, they were so amazing. So it was, you know, it was neat to have role models that inspired you to read. I recall that as the point when I became a real reader and seeking more. Yeah, mine was Babysitter Club books. And, and that's one of my favorite questions to ask at like teacher conferences and whatnot, which was, what was your hook book? So in other words, like what was the the series that you just couldn't stop reading or the author. Sometimes like I'll see kids will get into a Stephen King book and then they're just reading all the Stephen King, right? So that that first author that sucked you in or that first series that sucks you in. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's a powerful motivator. Can I ask, Wiley, it seems like early reading more than almost anything else in education, that experts in early reading have frustration points. Why? Why is this still happening? Uh, And, you know, you've mentioned a few, like, you know, we need to make sure that we have a cycle. We keep coming back to skills. You've mentioned the need to have diversity and the ability for students to see themselves and see others in books. Is there anything else that you feel like, man, I've got this ability to tell people right now, stop doing this, start doing this. Uh, Here's a thing that I just want you to hear. Is there something? (laughs) Well, I have a couple of things that we've, we've talked about already. I don't understand why we're so accepting of poor quality instructional tools, like decodables that are just awful. When there are better ones out there, we, we just need to raise the bar with the quality of the tools because it does impact students' desire to read and their the quality, either their understanding of what they read and, and so on. The other thing, is, and this might be sort of a minority opinion, I think we ask too much of our kindergartners. I, I just think we've gotten so aggressive in our demands for them. My expectations for a kindergarten going to first grade, you know, if they can read short vowel words, I am thrilled beyond belief. You know, we, we just push them and push them and push them. I know that there are a lot of kindergartners who are coming in, having had preschool and are, are ready. But before we had such high demands, and you asked me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run with this for a second, but this is why I'm so concerned. Before we had such high demands, there were kindergartners who came in, like myself, who grew up in an environment without books, who were a little bit behind. But now that our demands are so high, we get into reading like right away in that first, that first month. Those who are behind are way behind. And getting them caught up, you know, the, the expectations that they aren't ready for is it can be really, really problematic for them. And I, I feel for them and I wish that we would be a little more realistic about our approach to kindergarten and our expectations for kindergarten. That's all I'm going to say. It seems like a lot of our issues are systemic. The system of publishing low-quality readers, the system of publishing monoculture works, the system of expectations for kindergarten. Is there anything that we have individual power over as a teacher or as a leader? Is there, is there something that you're, uh, every time that you talk to a teacher, you're like, here's the thing you can do? That's a really great question. A lot of it depends on top-down in the district. I've always viewed instructional programs as tools that I need to know well and know how to use well, but then I need to layer on my knowledge of my students and their specific needs, and there's no perfect program. And too often, I go into places where the word fidelity comes up a lot. And I understand that word and I understand the importance. It's important for publishers that their stuff is implemented the way it was intended for so that you know, you can study the results and what have you. And I understand administrators investing so much time and money and energy into the programs. But at some point when you know the program, I've never encountered a program that modifications weren't necessary to some degree, even some of the best programs in order to meet the individual needs of the students in your classroom. And so I wish that we would empower teachers to do some of that thinking and some of that hard work using their knowledge base. So it requires us to train them really well, to understand the materials, to give them the background knowledge they need to know about teaching, but also trusting their expertise with their experiences with their students on a daily basis. Can I share what we do and you tell me if it's a good practice? 
when we adopted our most recent reading curriculum, I said, give me one month of fidelity to the program, and then we can start making changes to make it better. Do you think that's, I think that's good. an appropriate solution? I'm now a fan of yours. You're <laughs> <laughs> in New York City with the principals who are like, you know, we have invested a lot of money into this program. We, we want to see the results. We know there are things in the program that our teachers don't know well, and they need to use it. And I totally get that. But I asked that same question. Do you need them to use a program for a year that you know has flaws? Right. That's the legitimate question. Like, there's some great phonics programs out there, but one of the ones that's used very widely, and I don't name programs, but one that's used very widely, the students only read on Friday. Oh. You can't become a skilled reader if you're reading and writing every single day during your phonics lessons. They only read on Friday. It's a known flaw. Why would you have a teacher go through a whole year using a program that has that serious flaw in terms of maximizing student learning when you know it on day one? My theory is you need to know it well enough to know what is good at and bad at. So give me a little bit of time to figure out what is good and bad at. And then make adjustments because I do trust you. You're the expert. It's like you said, though, giving them the tools and making them available. But you said something else that I think I learned a while ago, too. Once and just begun is a much better way of putting something out there because uh, there are, I was guilty of this as many other principals and administrators where we, we, we focused on seven traits. Everyone got focused yeah. on seven traits and then we never spoke about it again and said, just go do it. And it just stopped happening. If you stopped looking, you know, we didn't reinforce it. I love what you, what you captured there, which is, this element of there's a lot of strength in being able to identify your weakness, right? And if you can say, this is an area I'm weak in, and then have a willingness to then improve, that's in a lot of ways stronger than just having this thing you do well, right? That's a really important point. Even something like phonics, you know, teachers come with a wide knowledge base of how to teach phonics. And so one of the things I do with the materials I create is we're going to spend this first month talking about blending. And that's going to be our focus. We're lots of conversations and we're going to see videos of teachers doing blending. And we're going to talk about issues you have. And then we're going to spend the next month on dictation and the next month on how we make our decodables more. Like we march through that first year, little pieces that we can dig in so that we're really focused on that first year, not only knowing the program, but also deepening our understanding of how to use those key routines and resources. So some of it is just sort of pre-planning how you use these materials and not overloading teachers with, you know, this onslaught of of information. Well, and I think Nick and Heather, I'll brag for them. They've helped create programs that we uh, want teachers to try and investigate new strategies and new things, but not just like, here, go try this and tell me all about it later. They actually embed themselves into the classroom and support them and co-teach, and they, th- there's an ongoing delivery of improving and developing instruction that way. You know, I was really lucky very early in my career to have a principal who was very open to my sort of crazy mind. And there were things that as a young teacher, this was before the internet, so it was harder to get information, but there were things I knew I didn't know and some things that I had questions about. And she allowed me, under her guidance, to do little mini studies. 
in my classroom where I could explore something I really need to know more about. And then we would debrief. And sometimes things change because of that. Mm-hmm. Like having sort of a, a teacher researcher when there's something you really, and maybe you do with a colleague, I'm going to try this and you try that during this part. And let's see which has the most impact. We're going to do it for a short period of time and see if we can really zero in on how to move this, how to fine tune this. And again, for our listeners who want to look up something, Wiley, I think you're talking about kind of a variation on action research. Yeah. And we've also really embraced what's called the Jugio method. And I'm clearly mispronouncing that, but it's a lesson study founded in, in research and, and visiting each other and trying things out in, in collectives. So for anyone listening, highly recommend. This principle is also really great because she knew that those of us who were younger teachers, beginning teachers, had areas of weakness. And so we we debriefed about that. And so like one teacher was really concerned about uh, classroom management. Another teacher is really concerned about writing. So we partnered with teachers in the school who were masterful at those things. We got to observe their classroom. We got to have them as our mentor during that period of time that we were trying to improve ourselves in those issues. You know, I often go to schools and they take me to the teacher doing the most exciting thing. And my first question is, does everybody know about this? And the answer is almost always no. And so how do take the amazing things that are happening in our schools and scale them up for everyone. You don't always have to bring in someone from the outside. Some of your teachers are doing some amazingly powerful things that everyone should know about. Do we take a videotape? Do we write up? So what do we do so that everyone can take advantage of this great innovation that this teacher is doing? We got to make it safe, that they feel safe and trying these things. And I think we've tried to encourage that here at Dover Yoda. I've always said the yeah. the my favorite teachers to work with are the teachers who are never satisfied, the ones who are always searching, always trying to be better. They know there's and one of the things I like about it being in education for as long as I've been in is I learn new stuff every year. There's there's always new information out there. We're always fine tuning. We're always improving. What we did ten years ago is very different from what we're doing today. There's a reason for that because we are we are growing and searching and what have you. And so I hope that we can instill that in our teachers, that same desire to keep stretching and growing and fine tuning in learning. If it's all right with you, we'll move to what we call in the blink of three eyes. That's great. These are meant to be rapid fire, you know, easy response questions for you. In the blink of three eyes. What podcast, book, show, or whatnot has been influencing your thinking lately? Well, this is probably a non-traditional answer, but I I said before I work with the reading coaches here in New York City, and during the pandemic, they have started their own television show on PBS to deliver reproduction. And so I get lots of questions about remote learning, what's working, what's not, and they do phonics lessons on that TV show, and it's really giving me some insights into what is really failing in terms of virtual learning around phonics and what is easy to implement. So it's given me some ideas of things I need to further explore. What was the name of the show? Let's Learn. It's on PBS here in New York City. Let's Learn. Their lessons. So they have a read aloud and they have phonics and they do science and it's really fun. Oh, fantastic. We really value innovation. What is one innovation that you've seen recently or would really like to see? One area of interest for me is adaptive technology. I've worked on some adaptive adaptive technology over the years, and I'm working on something now. But I'm most interested in adaptive technology that empowers teachers 
to be more efficient and effective at differentiating instruction. So I've started seeing some really exciting tools now, whereas the teacher is teaching and the students are working, the program collects information and the teacher can act on that information at point of use. Instead of having to wait to grade papers in the next day or circulate and try to listen in, technology tools that give teachers more time and information to more effectively differentiate. And that's an area that I'm working in right now that I'm excited about. Very cool. Yeah. And our last question, uh, listeners inspired by today's conversation may want to take action on their learning. Uh, what might that first action be? We sort of already talked about it. Ask questions. Find, find those resources close to you where you can, you can get answers to some of those questions. I, and I say this because as a beginning teacher, I felt a lot of pressure, like I needed to know everything. And I didn't realize that everyone knows I don't know everything. And so to, to allow teachers to feel comfortable enough to ask the questions they need answered and to have systems in place for them to get those answers. Fabulous. Part of my story, which which I don't know if you know or not, but I come from a family where my grandparents were illiterate. So I didn't grow up in a home with books. I know the obstacles that are placed in front of people when they can't read or write. And so for me, I feel like giving the gift of reading is one of the greatest gifts we can give a child because it's a gift that once given can never be taken away, but will forever transform their lives because it opens up the world of possibility. I think that what we do is transformative. I think it's a huge honor to teach children to read, but also this enormous responsibility to do it right and to do it well. So I would just tell the listeners, thank you for all that they do to do it right and to do it well. It is really important work, and you are changing children's lives forever. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you again to Wiley Blevins for joining us today. Our hosts, as always, have been Heather Like, Michael Carolyn, and Nick Trucks. Thank you to Michael Harrell for composing our theme music. And join us next time for a conversation with Teacher of the Year nominees in Minnesota. In the future, we'll be having conversations with Taylor Molly, world-renowned poet, and Ian Levy, Counselor of the Year and hip-hop education researcher. We look forward to seeing you then on Third Eye.